I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. This passage in Mark is where Jesus feeds the 4,000. It's another passage where if you don't study it carefully, I think you'll actually miss the point of the passage. It sometimes feels like just a repeated miracle. Oh, he fed the five, then the four, but there's something else being said here. And it can be missed on not only laymen, like those of us just reading the text and thinking about it, praying about it, but also even scholars uh, who frequently miss some very important things here. Now, this is the Mark series, part 26, Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10 we're going to be in. But before we get into it, I need to do an announcement. This announcement is actually for people watching online. Um, I want you guys to know, if you are planning on a visit to the Sunday night service for the next two weeks, we will not be meeting February 2nd and February 9th. So you'll want to come some other time. I'd hate for someone to make a trip out here and have a closed door. I'll be out of town for both of those services. All right, so Mark chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to just start reading through it. Again, you just want to like load this scripture in your mind. Just be noticing things. You're asking questions as you're reading the text. You're wondering, hopefully you'll get the answers to those questions throughout this study. And uh, here we go. Mark 8, 1. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. So they'd been with him for three days. We don't really get any details in Mark, like what was going on for three days with this crowd. What were they doing? But Matthew seems to give us some more details. So in Matthew 15, verses 29 through 31, we have like, the parallel passage of what happened during the three days. So let me read to you that passage. It says in Matthew 15, 29, Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and large crowds came to him, bringing with him those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid him down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. In other words, Jesus healed a lot. That's, you know, these crowds are bringing people to him. They're traveling to bring the ill, the sick, the wounded, the whatever, bring people to Jesus and he's healing them. But why, if it was just healing, why would they be there with him for three days? Like you go, you get healed, you leave. Like with the doctor, you don't stay there for three days. You go, if you're better, you take off. I think the only thing that can explain them being with him for three days consistently would be he's teaching them. So he not only heals them, he also brings them teaching. He also communicates truth to them. And we're not going to get a lot of the details about the teaching here, but I think, we, I think we're, we're safe in seeing Jesus is teaching this crowd. <clears throat> that would explain why they, st- why they stuck around. So this shows in the crowd a desire to not only, um, not only get a miracle, but to stick around and to hear the teaching of Jesus and to do so even to the point where they're like, I don't have enough food. Like, what am I, what's, our, what's our plan next? Now, who cares? It's more important for us to be with Jesus and learn from him right now. So that's a pretty neat thing that's going on with the crowd. This is, uh, brings up an interesting question and maybe a little bit of a dilemma sometimes in ministry, which is when we worry about people's natural needs, or I should say, when do we worry about people's natural physical needs? That's what Jesus does here. He's been healing and teaching, and all of a sudden he goes, they really need some food. And this is a priority to him, and he's going to do something about it. So why, why should we worry about the natural needs? I think some people who are serving in ministry or even just believers in general, we can be so aware of spiritual needs that we stop caring about natural needs. 
about physical needs. Well, the Lord doesn't treat us this way. In fact, he tells us, seek first the kingdom of God, and then the natural stuff will be taken care of. Not, who cares if you're starving? It's not quite that, that working that way. So we care about people. You care about people, so you care about their natural needs. There's a danger, or maybe two different dangers we can fall into when we're ministering to people. One danger is we only see the spiritual dimension of a problem. And this can actually make people feel like you don't care about them. They come to you and they're having an issue and you only see the spiritual side. You only see how it affects their walk with God. You only see where, where sin might be getting into the issue or where you know, obeying the Lord is, is important in this scenario. But you just miss out on the physical stuff that's going on entirely because in your mind, it's just not nearly as important. So you act like it's not there at all. That can be actually a mistake. Now, another mistake is to flip the script entirely and you only see the physical problem and you act like the spiritual issue is somehow secondary. Now, this can be, t- can be tempting when we're ministering to non-believers because a non-believer, especially I've got you know, years of counseling experience. I can meet a non-believer and counsel with them and give them great advice for their life and probably advice that would really help them. And if I just leave out the spiritual stuff, they'll probably be much more receptive to this advice. But that's also a danger because don't I care about your spiritual state? And so we see both of these things happening. I think the solution, the, the right balance, I'm, you know, every scenario is different on how to put this into practice, but the right balance might be to prioritize the spiritual as the number one priority, but to allow the, the natural needs also to be in there as a secondary issue. So number one, spiritual priorities. Spiritual things are a bigger deal. Like Jesus says, you know, don't labor for the foolish parishes, yet he still is feeding them. You know, he says, store up treasures in heaven right? He wants us to focus on the heaven things, but that doesn't mean that we um, don't do anything to take care of other needs. You know, for instance, they, they brought in seven um, wise, spirit-filled men to be over the distribution of the food to the widows in the book of Acts. These are just real physical needs. They made sure to take care of them. You know, in, uh, <clears throat> in the pastoral epistles, Paul says that if a man doesn't take care of his family, physical needs, he's worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so these things do matter. Right? These are important things that we, that we minister in those natural ways. So Jesus then goes on and he says, I feel compassion for the people. In verse 2, I feel compassion for the people, he says. Which made me wonder, and I, I think we should do this as we're reading the text of Scripture. It's like ask questions. My question was, why does Jesus bother telling them what he's feeling? This is not normal. How often does Jesus say, here's how I'm feeling, guys. I just want you to know. He doesn't usually do that. That's a unique, different thing. I think the simplest answer is so they would feel it too, right? I went, I'm feeling compassion for them. I care about them. Implication, you should too. You should care about them as well. Now, sometimes in ministry, we see tasks, but not people. In fact, when we see tasks and not people, we start to be annoyed when we do notice people. Oh, the people. Frustrated at them you know, with them even. This can be a danger in ministry um, where we have the work of the Lord, but it's just the work. It's, it's, it's like not really for the people of God. It's like we've forgotten why we're here doing what we're doing. The purpose, the, the, the idea that um, the body of Christ is an organism and we're meant to build each other up. And that's like the primary function of us inter- interacting with one another is building each other up in Christ. Instead, it's just all expectations and failed expectations is how we view other, other Christians. And that's a pretty unhealthy place to be. 
Jesus here says, I feel compassion for the people. That's a good reminder because we're doing ministry, but it's people that we're serving and the Lord that we're serving. It's all about relationships. Ministry is all about relationships. I'm serving the Lord and I'm serving people. This, keeping this in mind will help you from getting slowly bitter. And I've seen it happen many times. And I mean, I'm totally immune to it, fortunately. I'm kidding, right? Like I know, of course, this is the same for me, is that I could grow slowly bitter when I see the tasks of ministry, but not the people I'm ministering to. Or I see what I wish they would do instead of just an opportunity of people to love. And these are unhealthy attitudes that creep in and they change. They slowly skew my vision. And eventually you could project it onto your whole church. And you think your whole church is just totally messed up. But really, it's just like the glasses you're wearing, you know? It's just our perception that can get off. So he tells them, I feel compassion for the people. This just reminds us, ministry isn't just a task. It's compassion for the people. Compassion for the people. How big of a deal is this compassion being threatened? How big of a deal is it? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. And you know what? There's a problem here with me asking you to turn to this passage. Do you know it? You already know this passage. You've heard it at every Christian wedding you've ever been to. <laughs> you know? You know this passage. You know it really well. I'm, I'm not going to teach you anything new in it. There's nothing new I'm about to teach you. I'm just going to read you the passage, and all I want to do is encourage, encourage you to hear it fresh. Just to hear it fresh, and to re- remember that when he says, I feel compassion for the people, this is Jesus' attitude towards the people, and we're called to reflect the same attitude towards others in our own lives as we serve the Lord. Um, in ministry, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, which is anno- annoying, by the way. <laughs> like, I'm, like I've just become annoying. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but don't, do not have love, I am nothing. I'm a nobody. My skills matter nothing compared to my love. We often measure other people in our minds based upon their skills or their giftings. Here, it's like eh, irrelevant compared to their love and compassion. Wow. And if I give all my, verse 3, all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. It's motive 100% matters. 100% matters as we serve the Lord. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then we have a controversial section about Spiritual gifts, which I have a video on online, so we can check that out if you want. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I would just, I want to say this, that like this little phrase where Jesus says like, hey, I have compassion on the people. I think that's there for a very important purpose. I think it's to remind us that as we minister to people, you got to do it out of compassion for them. You need to have compassion for the people. When you see that God's love, when you see God's love for you, I think this is the inspiration we love because he first loved us. When you see others are his children also bought by the blood of Christ, then you love them. When you see others are lost in darkness and how much God reach, wants to reach them and bring them into his, his adoption through Christ, then you love them as well. Love affects a million things we do. It affects a, a million different things you do every day. 
It affects you in your attitudes. It affects you in your approach. It affects you in your decision making. So <clears throat> have compassion for the people is the idea. Because you can be busy serving the Lord, but you can be doing it in a rather empty way. And I think that this happens maybe more than we would like to admit sometimes, you know. Um, yeah, Lord, am I doing this out of love or am I just doing it? And this is where someone's going to be like, well, gosh, you're right, Mike. I'm not, I'm not serving out of love. I guess I should quit. Yeah, that's the application. You should quit. That's right. Stop serving the Lord entirely. Good idea. Yeah, no, you're, you're again not acting in love. <laughs> that's all you're doing. This is, a, this is just a second failure on top of the first. Rather, position yourself to act in love. But I can't just choose love. Actually, you, you can. You can choose love. You can choose to act with patience and long-suffering and kindness and not seeking your own. It's a decision we can make. And thank God. Love is frequently a verb. It's an action we put on and not just like uh, the butterflies in our stomach. In fact, sometimes it goes completely counter to my stomach, if that makes any sense. So I do want to say, though, I, I, I'm trying to trick you guys a little bit right now in this study. I deliberately spoke about ministry just now, but that's really not what this is limited to. I would like for you to take everything you thought about ministry and apply that to your family and apply that to your marriage and apply that to your friends. And just apply that to everybody in your life because for a Christian, everything is ministry. There isn't what I do for the Lord and then there's what I do the rest of my life. It's just all ministry. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 14, we have the command, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. And so this is something to remind us. Now, you will fall short in this. And this is not, I don't think we should hold up this, com this command of love as a pass-fail test. Either I'm succeeding in honoring God or I'm failing. Because you will always fail every time you look at this test. But it is instead meant to be like a, like a goal, like something we're striving towards, something we point ourselves towards and we reorient ourselves towards that thing. And that's the application, I think, for us. Jesus has compassion. We need to have compassion. It will change so much about everything. The frustrations you have in relationships, the bitterness, perhaps, anger, you know, just the carnal stuff that comes up in my heart and comes up in your heart that's natural to us as fallen humans. This will reorient, reorient us and change the way we see all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so the tasks, the stuff you're doing, that's just the stuff you do. Love is like the reason you do it and it changes how you do it and how you feel about it ultimately, eventually. Okay, in verse 4, we're going to read here verse 4 all the way through verse 10, Matthew, uh, Mark 8. And here we get the feeding of the 4,000. This is what Jesus does because of his compassion. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there and he sent them away. And immediately... He entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay, now I'm going to break into an apologetics section of today's Bible study. Um, I'm really enjoying doing these apologetics um, 
moments with you guys. And there, you know, in the past, I've done small, shorter, but this is a little bit more extensive because Mark um, is under a lot of, uh, let's say, scrutiny from various scholars or just basically people. I mean, it's it, online, you get stuff from anybody, right? Anybody with a keyboard is an authority um, on the gospel of Mark, it seems. Well, Here's what happens here. Um, some people say that the two feedings in Mark of the 5,000 and the 4,000, these are two different feeding stories. Some say that they are the same story and that Mark just, for some reason, told the same story twice and changed a couple details. In fact, it's the majority of scholars that say this. And here's an example where I think the majority is completely wrong, but I think it freaks people out that the majority of scholars would say this. So we're going to talk a little bit about this. Here's one of the reasons why they say there's similarities, similarities between the two stories. And just so you know, the reasons why they're duplicated aren't very thick. They're sort of thin from what I can tell. They say, well, they're both miraculous feedings. They both happen in a desolate place. Um, they both mention Jesus's compa compassion, right? In the first, Mark mentions Jesus's compassion. The second one, Jesus mentions it himself. And also crowds are told to sit. Crowds are told to sit. The disciples participate in handing the loaves out. Um, Jesus asks, how many loaves do you have in both stories? He prays in both stories over the food. Leftovers are gathered in both stories. Here's another example. Both stories have the, have the idea that the people ate and were satisfied. So they ate and got full both, both times. So then they're obviously duplicated stories. Now, I don't think that sounds super convincing personally. Um, Jesus had the people sit down. Well, I mean, it worked last time. I don't really know why you wouldn't do it the same way. I, you guys sit down every Sunday when you come here Sunday night and we do the study. But if I was to tell the story about how we had worship and then we had prayer and then we had a Bible study, you know, and then we had a discussion time afterwards, would, would some scholar come along and say, I think there was really only one Sunday night study and someone just fabricated that it happened every week because boy, it's like the same story every time. But, you know, there's similar stories because it's a similar thing that's happening. That is entirely possible, it seems. They mentioned the disciples helping as being evidence that this is a reduplicated story. But, like, was Jesus supposed to hand out the bread all alone? And what are they there for, the disciples? It just seems strange to me. I would think if it happened in real life, the disciples would help. So how is that evidence of reduplication? It just seems strange to, strange to me. How quickly they go from similarities to reduplication. Hypothetically, let's just say, what if Jesus had two similar miracles and he wanted to teach us something through these different miracles? Let's say hypothetically that's the case. How would these scholars know it? They seem to very quickly, and this is not uncommon in New Testament scholarship, to very quickly and casually just reimagine stuff about the text of Scripture, about things like what Mark is doing. Is it not an option that Jesus did it twice? What if the context indicates that these two different feedings are unique? And it does, by the way. What if their differences are preserved in not only Mark, but also in Matthew? Unique differences that are preserved. If they're so sloppy to reproduce, then why would unique differences be preserved in both books? What if they have these two different miracle stories have different theological significance? Well, then that doesn't feel like a reduplication. What if the meaning of this passage is central to the flow of Mark as a whole? Well, then it would seem like it had always been part of the story and not something that was added later. 
So let's talk about some of these things. Um, For instance, in Matthew and Mark, both uh, books record the differences of the numbers. 5,000 people, you know, 12 loaves, or 12 leftover baskets, excuse me, um, two, you know, how many loaves was it? And two, two fish? Five loaves and two fish, thank you. And then we have the 4,000 in the second story. 4,000 people, we have um, seven baskets picked up at the end of it, and we have, I forget how many loaves, I just read it. Seven loaves, thank you. And, and we've got these, these, and a few fish, right? Well, Matthew and Mark both record consistently those same numbers. And it's weird to think that ancient historical sources, let's just look at the Bible like it's an ancient historical source. It's strange to think that they would get all the little details right, but the whole story's fabricated. Do you see the problem with this? When stories are fabricated, you don't preserve little details. This is, this is strange. It seems like a counterintuitive kind of a thing. Let me give you some more reasons to see these stories that are as uniquely different. Um, now, I know it's Christians who are already believing this. Just based on inspiration alone, you can assume that these are accurate stories, and that's fair and that's right. But I like to offer even more support for the things that we hold. Um, R.T. France says in his commentary on Mark, he says that this, these, um, uh, this second feeding story, the 4,000, has been understood by most commentators as recording an incident in the primarily non-Jewish territory of the eastern shore of Galilee, and thus as continuing the theme of Jesus' ministry among Gentiles. Now that's hugely important. The theme. There's a thematic element in the Gospel of Mark. We looked at the Syrophoenician woman, right? She had her daughter, her daughter uh, had a demon cast out. Then we had this man who was deaf and mute, also in Gentile territory, and Jesus heals him. There's a whole conversation about the dogs and all this to put it in the bright theological context about Gentiles. And then here we have Jesus also again in Gentile regions, And now he does a similar miracle as he did for the Jews in the feeding of the multitudes with the loaves and fish. So let's look at some more differences. Um, There's seven loaves versus five loaves. I'm not going to focus on the numbers here because, again, I'm not really sure what the numerology of these things would represent. Maybe it's there and I just don't know it. But what's interesting is in Mark 6, we, we talked about this. They were near the time of Passover in Mark 6, and they were barley loaves. Barley loaves, which would have been very likely unleavened because it was the time of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it was very likely these barley loaves were unleavened. That's what Jesus multiplies and he hands out to all the people there. But then in the Mark 8 passage, it's just loaves, just generic loaves. Now we can assume that unless it's that rare circumstance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that these are leavened loaves. Why is that significant? Because there's only one offering in the Old Testament where leavened bread is offered, and it's that which represents um, the, the expansion of the kingdom of God at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, and the kingdom of God now is being opened up to all people. So here we have deep theological significance, even in Jesus just breaking the bread. Here we have the leavened bread, and then the unleavened, and then the leavened bread. I think that's pretty significant. I think there's another element, too. If you realize that this crowd was largely, not probably entirely, it's probably a mixed group because there's people from all over, but it was a lot of Gentiles there that Jesus was feeding, probably the majority. And Jesus says that he has compassion on them. Well, that has new significance now to his Jewish disciples. The one time Jesus bothers to mention he has compassion. I'll come back to that in a minute. But there's another thing. In Mark 6, 
when Jesus talk, it talks about why Jesus cares about the, the people, it's because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Well, they're Jewish people, and the Jewish people were the people of God, so they're like sheep without a shepherd. But when Jesus has compassion on the multitude of Gentiles, they're not mentioned as sheep without a shepherd because they're not his people. So they're just a group of people that have needs. So it's preserving the differences of them being Gentiles. All the Old Testament theology in Mark 6 um, takes us back to like Ezekiel where God, God says like, my sheep, um, they've been betrayed by their shepherds, the leaders of Israel. So I'm going to come myself and I will shepherd them. So it's predictive of Yahweh showing up to shepherd the people. That's Mark 6. Mark 8 is totally different. Jesus is like, there's no sheep shepherd. No, it's just they're going to faint. They're just a deeply needy crowd. That's it. Well, that's the Gentiles. They're just a deeply needy crowd. But there's another uh, differentiation between the two stories, and that's in the word baskets. And you won't get this in most English translations, but there's two different words for basket used. The 12 baskets they picked up after the feeding of the 5,000 and the seven baskets they picked up after the feeding of the 4,000 are two different Greek words for basket. One of them is a uniquely, it's a word that basically you find in Jewish context. It's a small basket. That's the 12 baskets. The other word, you never find it in some exclusive Jewish context. So it seems to be like the more common Gentile item. And it's a much larger basket, by the way. In fact, when Paul is in Damascus and he's lowered through the, out the window in a basket, it's that word for basket. It's a big basket, in other words. So the seven baskets could have been a lot more food than people realize when they had the leftovers. But let me quote to you. This is Eric Weffald in his article called the, the Separate Gentile Mission in Mark, and it was published in the Journal for the Study of the New Testament. <clears throat> he says the following. The word for basket in the Jewish feeding of the 5,000 has Jewish allusions and is considered typical in Jewish usages, while the word for basket in the Gentile feeding has no noted Jewish allusions. So it's, again, we're preserving their... This is something that happened to Gentiles in a Gentile context, in a Gentile region. Even the language of it fits that in several different ways. Not only is it in Mark 6 and Mark 8, it's also in Matthew. Matthew preserves the word, the different words for basket in the Greek as well. And Matthew and Mark both preserve the words when Jesus recounts the stories. Jesus says, in fact, we have it in uh, Mark 8 verse 19 and 20. Jesus says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces um, did you pick up? Well, this is, this is that word baskets for the Jewish usage, right? Then they said to him, 12. And he says, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets, that's the more non-exclusively Jewish word, um, full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said seven. So Jesus remembers uh, later on, separate saying of Jesus, he remembers the amount the kind of basket, the Jewish-Gentile distinctions, the numbers, all this stuff. Matthew, though, preserves the exact same thing. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 9 and 10, Jesus does the same statement where he uses the words basket for the proper feeding. The point here is that why would such details be preserved if the story is made up? It doesn't make sense. Unless you think Mark is like a really clever liar. Because that's what you end up having to do. Because some people, they want to act like it's, it's a community effort. Like Mark is a result of a bunch of gathered stories, random stories about Jesus, and just kind of smashed together into a book. But as you study the Gospel of Mark, you're like, no, it's brilliant theology woven through the Old and New Testament and throughout the text of Mark. This, was, this is a, a tapestry of theological 
depth. So then you can't act like it's this big community jumble thing. So either it's true or someone's totally cleverly lying straight through. And they somehow got a bunch of other guys to do it too. Right? It just starts to turn into this big conspiracy about Jesus. Um, anyhow, <clears throat> in my view, this is where I think, this, I think the scholars, while there may be a majority in this field, they're grasping at straws. They're grasping at straws. And New Testament critics who do this sort of thing have been criticized by other people who study ancient literature, but just not New Testament. Like other people who study ancient texts will look at the New Testament guys and they'll be like, boy, you guys do weird stuff with the New Testament that we would never be allowed to do when we're studying like Homer or, or you know, Herodotus or somebody else. Like you, you just, you can't do that. You can't be like, well, Josephus is really trying to emphasize the theological implications of, no, he's just telling you what Vespasian did. Like that's all he's doing, you know. It, they do weird things. I'll give you an example. In the 17 and 1800s, there was tons of scholarly literature on why John said there was this pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. What is this pool of Bethesda? Why does John mention five porches? And there was all these things that are like, well, the five porches represents the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Ah, the five, or it was the first tablet of the law with the five, you know, and there was all this, this stuff, like what is John really getting at? Until not too long after all that, they dug into Jerusalem and found the pool of Bethesda with five porches. And in one archaeological dig, they burned up like two tons of German fake scholarship. Now, this stuff was like really popular. And if you had been alive before the excavation in Jerusalem and you've been a student in school, you would have read, John's just making stuff up because he's trying to make theological points. You know, 10 minutes later, you're like, oh, that's all trash. <laughs> what do you know? It's just what happened. It's just what actually happened. And I think that this is something that needs to happen in uh, modern New Testament scholarship because what they do is they approach Mark like it's this sort of, like I said, a jumbled mess of a bunch of different traditions put together by an editor. But all the indications seem to be that Mark comes from the eyewitness testimony of Peter. The thing is that if you start thinking like that, then you start to look at it and go, this stuff really happened. Like, well, then who was the genius to put all this together? And all of a sudden you realize it's not even Mark, it's not even Peter, it's Jesus. Jesus is the genius that's putting all this stuff together, walking his life in such a way as to reveal the truth of God's plan of salvation for mankind. So it's, it's beautiful. So let me highlight on this. Um, what we've got so far is there's a Gentile mission going on in Mark. So I just want to remind us of that. It starts when Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and he helps that Syrophoenician woman. She has a child who is demon-possessed and Jesus um, heals or delivers this child. Why? Because she has this conversation about the, about the, the, the dogs eating the breadcrumbs that fall down. This is to set the theological like um, understanding that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He will help the Gentiles, but they must recognize his Jewishness. In other words, you got to get the Old Testament with Jesus. You don't get Jesus without the Old Testament. That's the idea. You have to know who he is. You got to know the Old Testament. Um, um, that <clears throat> corresponds to the New Testament. All of it does. Uh, and the Old Testament, which talks about the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew first and then the Gentile. In Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, it says, God speaking to Abraham about his plan for how he'll bless all people. He says, I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's going to be a blessing to you and your people, 
but then in you, everyone will get the blessing, Jew first and the Gentile, right? Isaiah 49.6, I read this a couple weeks back, but I'm going to read it again because it's good. Beautiful statement about the ministry of Jesus. This is in a messianic uh, section of Isaiah. Isaiah 49.6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This whole Jew first and the Gentile, it's, it's uh, mirrored in Jesus' actual physical ministry in real life, right? When he shows up, he does all this ministry around Galilee to the Jews. And then Mark shows three different stories to show him also reaching Gentiles in the gospel of Mark. People think this didn't happen until Acts sometimes, but it's actually happening in Mark. The three stories are an exorcism, a healing, that was the deaf mute, and then a nature miracle, the provision of the food. So the same kinds of miracles Jesus was doing for Israel, he then out of the overflow of that ministers to the Gentiles as well. I think that's beautiful. I think that this is the kind of thing that later on in the book of Acts, right, when we read about Peter and stuff going like, you know, he's like, don't call unclean what I would call clean, Peter. Those Gentiles, they could be saved too just by faith. And he's like, Really? You know, and I think they would have thought back to what Jesus did and been like, oh, I get it. This is why he, this is why he helped that woman. This is why he had compassion on the people. This is why he did these different things. <clears throat> think of the book of Jonah. Jonah was sent as a prophet to help the Ninevites avoid future judgment, and he didn't even want to go. I wonder what it felt like for them to hear that Jesus had compassion on this group of people who included probably a majority of Gentiles. Them? I wonder how, how they felt hearing that. <clears throat> now, I want to talk real quick about the order of handing out. Now, now that we have the Jew-Gentile thing seen in the first feeding and the second feeding, this, and it's, it's in Matthew as well that he's in a Gentile region. Um, so we see that in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus takes the bread, he gives it to the disciples, and they hand it out to the people, mostly Jews. In the, in the second feeding, he takes the bread, gives it to the disciples, and then now they're handing it out to a bunch of Gentiles. You see the significance changes, and our understanding of it changes. In Acts, we see this play out. First, they give the, disciple, or the disciples give the gospel out to the Jews, and then eventually the disciples give the, the gospel out to the Gentiles. And we see here the ministries of Peter and then the ministry of Paul kind of highlighting those two different aspects in the book of Acts. So Acts is mirroring what Jesus is um, teaching. So if the similarities, I, I, so I've showed you a bunch of unique differences and reasons to think it's really real historical events and all that kind of stuff. But if the similarities don't point to reduplication, then what are they pointing to? Then why are the stories so similar? Why, why not just do a, a, a miracle, but a feeding miracle that's so similar to the 5,000 one? I think the answer is it's meant to point to Gentile inclusion in the benefits of Christ. That's the idea. What Jesus is doing for Israel, Jesus is doing for the world. What Jesus is doing for his people, he's doing for all people. That's the lesson. And to me, this is so beautiful. As God so loved the world, he gave his own son. I think this is be really beautiful stuff. I think there's another element, too, in the, in the feeding of the 5,000. Of all the miracles of Jesus, this one, probably more than any other, at least that I can think of, specifically speaks about his death. Because it's there um, in his final meal with the disciples where he breaks bread again and he gives new meaning to it, right? 
This is my body broken for you. This is, this is significant. I, there's actually what the, what the scholars call Eucharistic terms in the feeding. And we don't mean Eucharistic in the, uh, in the discussion about transubstantiation and Catholicism. That debate, this is irrelevant to the issue. Um, the, the idea here is that there is terms that associate the feeding of the 5,000 with communion. Some of the words that are used in the 5,000 and the 4,000 feeding are the same words that Jesus is using with the disciples in 1 Corinthians when he's quoted talking about giving his body for the people. And John makes this really clear because John's like, Jesus said, I'm the bread and you have to, you have to partake of me. I mean, that couldn't be any more clear that this is speaking ultimately of Christ offering himself on the cross. So here's the story. The feeding of the 5,000 is showing the, the, um, the Jews that Jesus is not only the new Moses, comes and fulfills the Old Testament and he's going to provide for them um, and showing ultimately he's going to offer his life to die on the cross. But then when he does it for the Gentiles too, it's like saying Jesus is going to die for them too. Jew and Gentile. It's going to be for all people. We see in both miracles, we see a hungry crowd with no food in sight because we too are going to die without Jesus. We need his salvation. We need his life offered for us or we'll die. It's a seemingly impossible task in both cases, both the feedings. There's no, way, there's no, there's no natural solution to this problem. And so the same situation, um, we have no recourse of our own. The disciples can't even think of a way to feed the crowds. There's just no recourse. We need a miracle. The crowd is asked to sit down. I think this is interesting because in Hebrews, we get the idea of sitting down as being resting or you're not working. So you sit and Jesus is just giving you all the work, all, all the goodness of his work. He gives it to, the, to his disciples. His disciples give it to the people, meaning that he provides the bread, but we deliver the message and give it out to others. And so we see salvation going out like that. So there seems to be like a strong communion connection and the idea of Christ's death and resurrection. Now I want you to imagine being a Gentile. Like imagine you're in Israel. You're not, you're not, you don't go to synagogue. You're not Jewish, Okay. The Jews don't really like you there. You're part of the Decapolis. This is like the area that Rome had like a group of cities that were ready to gather together and fight against the Jews in case they decided to rebel. That's your group of cities. You're the Decapolis. Jesus is visiting your region right now. And here he is healing your people and teaching you and helping you. And you have two obstacles to overcome. One, you're like this filthy Jew, you know, to Jesus. Like, oh, what is this guy? But also you're like, why, why is, I mean, I understand he's like their savior. Why is he helping us? Why is he doing anything for us? This is where Matthew, when the crowd gets healed, they cry out, you know, they cry out glory to the God of Israel. This is converting them to believing that the God of Israel is the true God. This is Jesus's work. I think they would have thought, me? Why does Jesus care about me? He's, he's, he's reaching out to me? Well, why? I don't understand. But I also think now, imagine if you were the Jew. You were the disciple following Jesus. And, he's, and Jesus, you know, you're our Jewish Messiah, right, Jesus? You're going to help us destroy and kill all the Gentiles in the land, right? Isn't that the whole plan? Right? And then they go to the Gentiles and they're thinking like, all right, maybe now's the time. Are we going to slay him? Oh, you're going to heal him. Them? You're going to feed them. Them? And so I think there's this, this contrast between the Gentile rightly saying, me? You're going to help me? We've rejected your God? But you're helping me? You're, you're saving me? And for some of us, we're like that. We're like, me? 
you feel like hesitant to receive the grace of God that he's poured out upon you in Christ. And I just want to say, get over it. God doesn't love you because you are worth it in some sense of your own, like what you produce or what you bring to the table. If you're like, Lord, me, are you really, you want me? The answer is yes, you. But some of us were on the flip side. We're like them, Lord, you want to heal them? You want to save them, that person? And I think that we here have the beautiful message of how much God loves me and how much God loves them. And we have both of these preserved in these stories. We need both of these. I need the comfort in my heart of knowing that God loves me. I mean, you don't, will not sleep well at night if you will not accept how much God loves you in Christ. You need to be reminded of it. It's not about your performance today. When you go to bed, the love of God does not depend on your performance today. And no matter how much somebody else has messed up, Lord loves them. I have compassion on the people, he said. The only time he had to tell them, probably because they were a bunch of scummy Gentiles, right? <laughs> them? <laughs> but the Lord has compassion on them. And then in verse 10, it says, And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha. Now there's another little apologetic discussion that goes on in this verse, so I'm going to mention it briefly. <clears throat> Dalmanutha is a bit of a challenging location to find because we don't have the name occurring in any other sources. From the first century, we don't really know where's Dalmanutha. Now some, I think it depends on what you assume, like maybe it's your bias that you bring to the table. Some, their bias would be, well, see, obviously Mark made up that place. Dalmanutha. He just made it up, made it up whole cloth. And others would think, look, Mark has a historical place that no other source has. This proves that he really knows the area of Galilee better than other people. And it's interesting how like your perspective has you just assuming different things. Um, and I do think it's kind of interesting. But, uh, but in this passage, we, we have the parallel in Matthew. Matthew doesn't say Dalmanutha. Matthew says they went to either Magadon or Magdala, different variations of the same place. Now, Magdala, we know, is like up towards the north-ish um, western side of the shore. So on your angle, it's up over here, that region, right? From the Sea of Galilee, right here. Remember, Sea of Galilee looks kind of like a miniature Africa, sort of, not as bulbous on this one side. But anyhow, uh, you know, that's where it is. <clears throat> is it possible that these refer to the same area? Because that, that would be the easiest way to, to see Matthew and Mark coming together here is that Dalmanutha and Magdala or Magadon are the same place. Well, the continental root or the root word for um, Dalmanutha is in the Talmud and it has the meaning wall. Wall. So that's interesting because this can help connect Magadon with Dalmanutha. Magadon was directly below the massive wall or cliff of Arbel. And you can actually Google this if you'd like on your phone. Look up Cliff of Arbel. It's in the Sea of Galilee, and it is a cliff that mountain climbers like to climb in that region. It's a natural defense. Josephus writes about the same region having a defense of the sea on one side, and then this cliff on the other side, and then later then bolstered up a wall around the other uh, portions so they could defend against when they were rebelling against the Romans eventually. Um, so from the sea, this would look like, if you just panned around the sea, you'd see a big wall. That's what the cliff of Arbel would look like to you. So this may actually uh, be a way to connect the two, um, you know, Magadan and Dalmanutha. 
There's also one other element, which is that recently archaeological studies have found that where Magadan is, there is a twin city or another city right next to it, and they don't know the name of it. Um, But it looks like it's a a different city, a separate city right next to um, Magadan. That might have been called Dalmanutha. That may well be the case. There's lots we don't know about the first century. What's strange to me, though, is this. If we weren't reading Mark and we just discovered any other random text that was from the first century... And it said that in the Sea of Galilee, there is a town called Dalmanutha or a region called Dalmanutha. Everyone would be like, look, there's a region called Dalmanutha. That's just what you do. But I don't know. It's in Mark. We, we don't like Mark. So he probably made it up. And this, I think, uh, is silly. <clears throat> All right. So in closing, uh, the works of Christ here are always meant in Mark to attest to the person of Christ and the greater work of Christ. And that's what we're seeing. Jesus is provision for the Jew first and then the Gentile and that his provision is not just miracles and healings, but his provision is God himself showing up who will offer himself to heal your sin and your rebellion because he what has compassion on the people for Jew, for Gentile, for, for me, for them, all of the above. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for grace that was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you so much, Jesus, for the, um, the way in which the, the, the life you lived, the miracles you chose, and the path that you chose to walk left us with a theological trail to follow. It's exciting to learn from it and grow. We pray, Lord, that right now we would embrace fully that you love us that we would embrace it fully, completely, that you love us. That we wouldn't resist this, we wouldn't doubt this, we wouldn't wrestle against it, but that we would rest in it. We'd be like the crowd just sitting on the ground and you providing all that we need. We pray also, Lord, that we would embrace fully that you love others, that you love them, whoever the they are that maybe we're frustrated with or irritated with or maybe we just don't even care about. Help us, Lord, to embrace your love for them. In Jesus' name, amen.